It's October 5th, 2016. Our message this evening is Paul's Thorn and Grace. Uh, a couple housekeeping items. Friday uh, at 7 is a Discipleship 3 class that is uh, going to be on Nuthetic Counseling. Uh, I will be teaching that, um, not because I'm teaching it, but because of the subject matter. You, you don't want to miss that. Uh, much of Christianity has been led astray in talking about uh, feelings. And um, much of our music seems to be about skipping on the beach holding hands with Jesus. Nuthetic counseling is a return to sanity. It, it describes what God's standard is, where you are at, and what you will do to close that distance. And uh, it is the key to effective counseling. Uh, if you have been counseled with men are from Mars and women are from Venus or whatever other kind of ridiculous nonsense, we will be counseled from the Word of God on Friday night. And I can tell you firsthand it makes an extraordinary difference. Secondly, I would just like to say that we're seven days away from uh, the completion of a five-year vision. Uh, Jennifer, my wife, had an open vision, and uh, from there... It caused us to get some directives uh, from the Lord. We really began to seek the Lord about the nations. He told us to begin the one association. We are now five churches, and before the end of the year, we will probably be seven churches. Uh, that's, in, that's in five years' time. That is really an extraordinary feat when you think about it. I would also just encourage you, as difficult as it can be to advance the kingdom, consider that in the last five years... Uh, on October 13th, 2011, I called Pastor Sutherland, who was at a church with 5,000 members in it. And I said, Pastor, I believe that you are supposed to be at Life Changing Ministries. I believe that you will pastor this church. He is here and is full-time on staff. Matthew Pirro was not on staff. In the last five years, we have added two pastors, touched every continent on this planet except the icy ones, uh, and are actively involved in missions in 31 countries. And right now, while I am preaching, our first full-time, fully supported missionaries of the One Association are landing in Indonesia for a lifetime of service. Amen. I'm not saying that to pat us on the back, but I am saying... That if you set your face with determination towards the will of God, it doesn't matter whether you start in a living room, a garage, or like me, we're a brawler in a parking lot. The king of kings will accomplish much through a man who is simply obedient. Amen? Yeah. Um, I can't help but say also, it is the 37th or 8th day of Titus' life. Yeah. He's having a good life. Titus Magnus. Benjamin Stevens is going to grow up in the presence and power of the Lord. Do you know why? Because it's up to us. Amen. And if we take that responsibility seriously, the word does not say when they were old, they'll come back to the wet. It says if you train them in the way that they should go, they will not depart from it. We need not twist the scripture to make it fit our behavior. We need to twist our behavior to make it fit the scripture. That one will walk with the Lord. Have you ever wondered what Paul's thorn was? Well, you'll be disappointed when you read the commentaries on the subject. Uh, I'd like to start with, with Paul's thorn. Uh, 
As we do that, we should probably read 2 Corinthians 12 just as a place to start, and we'll see where it takes us. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. I cannot begin to describe to you how sad it is to hear people attempt an interpretation of these, uh, these verses. It is usually revealing a bias to want to justify sin in their lives. Uh, today we're going to try to pull some of that back, see whether we can understand from a Hebraic perspective what this uh, rabbi is saying and also what corrections the scripture might be bringing us in our view of grace. Is that all right? Even if it's not all right, it's what we're going to do. So you might as well strap yourselves in and get ready. Amen. Let's go to Genesis 3.17. And this would bring us to our first slide. I'm going to put some notes on the screen. There may be a few scriptures that we do not put on the screen simply because I want you to be able to reflect on these in your notes. So in Genesis 3.17 says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. One of the direct consequences of Adam's sin in submitting to his wife, who was submitting to a satanic power, was that thorns came out of the ground. One of the more interesting things is this particular passage can be translated several ways. I'm not going to retranslate it for you today, but I would say that the King James Version, the New King James Version, and many other fine versions say, Cursed is the ground for your sake. This is because the Hebrew word here comes from Strong's 5668, and it is A-B-U-R, abur, and uh, for instance, in the NIV, it's translated in Genesis 12, 13, for your sake. It, it is a preposition, and it can uh, mean different things depending on the context. In this case, it's actually both. Because of what Adam did, the ground is cursed, and the ground is cursed for Adam's sake. It's both. You say, how could thorns coming out of the ground ever be good? How could the product of sin or the consequence of sin, ever be good for us. This is largely because we're in a society where we do not want to see consequence of sin. What we want to be told is that it's all under the grace and there is no consequence of sin. But that is simply not a biblical perspective. Right here in the law of God, beginning in Genesis 3... The word says, cursed is the ground because of you and also for your sake. 
Notice that it goes on to say it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until the day you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Something about the struggle in the creation, something about man's daily need to eat and the difficulty of eating because of sin would drive him to the Lord. Notice Adam is not depressed when he hears this. Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. On the day that mankind is pronounced dead, Adam receives um, a word from God. Notice Adam was not cursed by God. The ground was. And the ground was cursed for Adam's benefit. In this struggle, something would happen. He would learn of his very great dependency upon the Lord. It would drive him away from his independence of God and towards dependence upon him. Let's move to the prophets. Turn with me to Judges. You'll be in the second chapter of Judges. And we'll just leave that note on the screen for those of you that are taking notes. In Judges, the second chapter, beginning in verse 3. Now therefore... I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your... I should have waited on you, huh? Judges, the second chapter. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Move right past the first chapter and into the second. When you find the second chapter, let your finger land on the third verse. You can discover it and land on it like Columbus. How many of you are there? All right. In verse 3 then, which I now have to find again. By the way, I'm a grandpa now. It's been an itch. It's been seven days since I buried my father. I'm sorry, seven days since my father died. Uh, Not not just a few days since I buried him. Uh, We got grandbabies around, people needing to be buried. Uh, Trials all over the church. I've never felt the greater need to be dependent on the Lord than right now. And it's a good place to be. It's a really good place to be. If you find yourself surrounded by trial and difficulty, don't consider yourself punished. Consider yourself blessed. It might be the very thing that is driving you towards what you need. Okay, verse 3. Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive out before you, drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your And their gods will be a snare to you. Now, that doesn't sound like particularly good news. I I would not be happy to hear that. Uh, In Joshua's lifetime, the elders that were with him uh, and the leaders, they were driving out the enemies that were in the land, the seven nations that were stronger than Israel. And by the power of the Lord, they were driving them out. As we moved into the time period of the judges, the people began to prostitute themselves and God was angry. He said, I won't drive them out before you now. In fact, they're going to be a thorn in your side. Nobody wakes up one day and says, can I please have a thorn in my side? No, nobody asks for such a thing. But notice in verse 20 what begins to happen. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel 
and see whether or not they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their fathers, forefathers did. How many of you like tests? Well, I guess that depends on how well prepared you are for it. You like it when you get an A and you probably don't like it as much when you get an F, do you? The Lord is leaving a means of testing his people, a means of evaluating their progress, letting him and them see exactly where they are because their present state is that they're unfaithful. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test those Israelites who had not yet experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The thorns were left there because of disobedience, but they were left there to teach the descendants something. In other words, the consequence of a sin can be the consequence because of disobedience, but the consequence itself might teach you something into the future. How many of you wrecked your first car? You can raise your hand for that. How many of you wrecked the very first car that you ever got? Is that an amazing thing? Now, I don't want to draw any special attention to the males in my household, but they wrecked the first and second car they got. Some of them they wrecked several times. I considered wrapping a big inner tube around the vehicles just so we could treat it as it was a bumper car. As life goes on and you understand more and more the consequence of things like that, it tends to happen less frequently which is why our insurance rates drop as we get older in most cases. There is supposed to be a maturing that happens in the life of a believer where because of the ongoing presence of the consequences of previous sin, we learn to stay away, away from sin. You probably didn't think a great deal about it the first speeding ticket you got, but if you get enough to consider an insurance company dropping you, then you think very carefully about how you drive because the consequences are rising. You feel me yet? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. In the law, we see that thorns were added as the result of sin, but they were there for the sake of the man. In the prophets here, in Judges, we see that thorns were added as the result of sin, but it was to teach the people something. Turn with me to Psalm 119. When you get to Psalm 119, find verse 67 and announce yourself as there. Amen. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Anybody wake up today and say, please afflict me? Of course not. But if the affliction drives you towards the Lord and towards wanting to be obedient, then can we really call the affliction a bad thing? Probably not, huh? So it's a matter of perspective. A lost man or an immature or a backslidden man sees every discipline of the Lord as punishment, as God hating him, vis-a-vis Cain. When God shows mercy to Cain by simply telling him what would happen... Cain is downtrodden and acts as if the Lord's trying to kill him. He runs off and builds cities in the land of Nod. 
He did not understand that the Lord was actually being merciful to him. In the Christian life, when we do not have consequence as the result of sin, it is not good for us. If Samson had experienced serious consequence the first time he was disobedient, there might not have been a second, third, fourth, fifth time. It's the lack of consequence and the feeling of immediate victory that allowed a Nazarite to be in a vineyard a second time. How many of you know a Nazarite's not supposed to be in a vineyard? How many of you know a Nazarite shouldn't be there the second time? The first time he was there, he was attacked by a lion. And he defeated the lion. So he didn't think he did anything wrong. After all, the Lord's with him, right? Then the next time he's in the vineyard, God only knows why he's back there again, he sees the dead lion and he takes honey out of the dead lion. He knows it's wrong because when he gives it to his parents, he doesn't tell them where it came from. Now a habit is forming. He's doing things that he knows are wrong, but he has no consequence in his life. He only feels victory. And now self-deception has set in. He actually believes he can do what he wants to do and the Lord will bless him. This psalm says plainly, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. In that case, somebody in here might say, a righteous man strike me. It's an oil. It's a kindness. My head will not refuse it. Or one translation said, it won't break my head. Not being stricken could break your head. If afflictions cause us to seek the Lord, then they are good things. When sin entered in the law, we saw thorns. When it entered in the prophets, we saw thorns. Figuratively speaking, we see that the affliction of those thorns can cause you to want to seek the Lord. We saw that in the writings in Psalms. I'd like to show you Joseph's life real quick. This is just a figure from the law. Uh, the passage I'm quoting is, of course, from the writings, but uh, Joseph's life is contained in the law. Reading from Psalm 105 in verse 16 on the screen. He called down a famine on the land and destroyed all the supplies of food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved true. When you think of Joseph's life, remember that he was hated by his brothers, not just disliked, hated. Here comes that dreamer, they said. They plotted to kill him. And instead, they sold him. Ishmaelite traders pick him up and take him to Egypt. In Egypt, he's lied about, right? Accused of things that he didn't do. He's forgotten in a jail cell. But none of those things kept God from being faithful to him, did they? Listen to the way that the Septuagint quotes this very same verse 18. The Septuagint says it this way. They humbled with shackles his feet. Iron went through his soul. What if dealing with the consequences of sin all around you is actually infusing something into you that shows you to be stronger than you ever believed you could believe? Be. There is a principle at work here. God knew that when Adam was doing uh, his work in the garden at a what could only be described as a paradise, right? The actual Hebrew for it means paradise. How well did he do? Not well. He forgot God's commands quickly. So adding frustration to his life 
would drive him towards the need for the Lord. It would make him dependent upon the Lord. When Joshua was seeing relative success everywhere that he went, and now he's gone, how well did uh, the descendants of, of Joshua's tribes do in the book of Judges? They immediately prostituted themselves. The victories did not bless them. The lack of adversity, the lack of struggle actually hurt them because they quickly turned away from the Lord. Are you feeling me yet? Okay, let's, let's take an example from the prophets out of David's life. It'll be our next slide. Keep in mind that David uh, starts his life in a field, right? David is uh, taking care of Jesse's uh, sheep. And he's fighting with lions and bears. Do y'all remember that from Samuel 17? Okay. Uh, He moves on to become a soldier. He kills Goliath. Then he moves into Saul's court, right? Sometimes he's playing music for Saul. Sometimes he's going out to warfare. The children of Israel were singing songs like, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He moves to a place where he is king over the southern kingdom of Israel. All of this time, he's doing great. He's got adversity from lions and bears. He's got adversity from enemy soldiers like Philistines. He's even got adversity from the king of Israel throwing spears at him. He has adversity from a civil war that is happening all around him. In 2 Samuel 8.14, I'll just quote this last part for you. It says, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Wouldn't that be the end of a story and be a great story? It's not the end. In 2 Samuel 8, we have victory wherever he goes. By 2 Samuel 11, do you know what David is doing? He's on a roof with no battles to fight. And he looks on Bathsheba. And then sin is born in his heart. Is that the saddest moment in David's life? Lust leads him to murder. Murder takes him further into lying and all of those things. And in 2 Samuel 12, a prophet comes and confronts him. When you hear what the prophet says, our tendency is to see it as a punishment because it's consequence. I'm going to argue with you tonight that what most have seen as a punishment is a consequence that actually protects him for the rest of his life. In 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 10, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Why didn't he say he'd sinned the day before? Because there was no consequence. He was not confronted with his sin. The day before, he was just going along and getting along. But in the moment that he is confronted with consequence, it brings him to a place where he recognizes he's sinned. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. If he's not going to die, then what are these consequences there for? They will keep him trained upon the Lord. The constant adversity in his life means he's never going to go hang out on a rooftop again checking out the ladies bathing. The constant 
calamity going on in his own family and in his own land would drive him to write most of the Psalms that are in the Bible. So were these thorns a good or a bad thing in his life? Well, the, re- the result of a bad thing, but they work for good in his life. How many things are in your life right now that are the consequence of sinful actions, but God will use them to refine you in good ways? We don't sin so that grace abounds, but the truth is, is the man who repents well, even the sinful things that you did, he can cause to work for your benefit. It's an interesting concept. Look at how David's life finishes. In Acts 13, 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David did some things that God didn't want him to do for sure. But he also was obedient in everything. Do you know why? Most of his kingship, he was running from rebellious sons. Most of his kingship, he was fighting with enemies. Most of his kingship, he was praying things like, Lord, break the teeth out of the mouths of the wicked. I'm surrounded by the strong bulls of Bashan. He, he, he was under siege most of the time. Do you know what that meant for him? It meant he depended on the Lord greatly. He always needed the Lord to save him. How many of you love the Psalms? When, when asked, what's your favorite book of the Bible, how many of you would say the Psalms? It's an amazing thing. The humanity in the Psalms draws many of us to it. You, you love it and you can personally identify with it. That's because it's about a man who is desperately in trouble, but God is saving him. How many books of the Bible are about men who have achieved greatness and are standing there and handle their greatness well? I can't think of a single one. Acts 13, 36. How would you like this to be said about you? For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. Will it be said of you that you finished God's purpose in your generation? I mean, what an extraordinary thing to be said. What if these thorns, these goads, or the King James word, these pricks in his life, constantly steered him into the will of God so that he would complete what God called him to do? Then do you love them or do you hate them? Do you curse them or do you rejoice in them? Let's look at, from the writings, a figure named Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, would just let this passage speak for itself. In verse 32, 932. Now therefore, O our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of... It's a covenant of... Wow, even the Mosaic law, a covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. How did he know that? He suffered under the captivity. He's now bringing the people out of the consequence of their sin. Look at verse 38. In view of all this, We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing 
their seals to it. If consequence causes you to set more firmly in your way, to bind yourself to the way of the Lord, to affix your seal to it, are consequences bad for us? I would say they're good. So let me ask you again, are consequences bad for us? See, you can speak in church. Nobody's been struck dead in this church ever for speaking. It's a Wednesday night. We're not going to glaze over. How many times do you get a chance to solve what Paul's thorn is? Surely we're not so spoiled that that doesn't interest us, huh? Adversity compels a savior. This is Nachmanides. He's a 13th century rabbi and physician. He wrote commentaries on the Bible. He says, precisely at a time where one, of, one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. In other words, every time a very great trouble came, God provided a very great savior. You know, people that are not in very great trouble never find a very great savior. Maybe this is why he who sins much loves much. Maybe this is why it's the religious who are always the furthest from God. Maybe this is why Zechariah hears uh, the Lord speak through the angel uh, Gabriel standing in the temple by, beside the altar of incense, but he doesn't believe him. And God has to strike him with numbness for six months. But Mary, standing on dirt floors in Nazareth, immediately believes the Lord and wants to do exactly what he said to do. See, it turns out that those who are in the most difficult of circumstances are the ones that are the most attentive to what the Lord has to say. Why are all of the miracles on the mission field? Because we're affluent. The poorest among us are affluent. That's why. The poor are rich in faith. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. The, the overwhelming testimony of the Scripture speaks to this, but we still act like we don't know why. Let's just get right down to it. We're not desperate for God. In fact, we can sit in church and be thinking about what you're going to watch on Netflix when you get home. But my friend in Matamoros right now is thinking about what he's going to eat tomorrow. If he's going to eat tomorrow. Why are all the miracles somewhere else? Well, perhaps we don't have enough thorns in our life. We've removed the consequence of sin at every turn. Psalm 116.6, the Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, He saved me. When did you get saved? When you're in great need. This gospel that is being preached from clown centers everywhere, but no bigger one anywhere in the United States than right here off of Interstate 59, is a gospel that says you're doing pretty good and the Lord can help you do better. And if you completely disobey the Lord, that's just not His best for you. It is an absolute damnable lie. The truth is, is you are dead in your trespasses, incapable of pleasing God, until you are born again, a brand new creature. And then as a brand new creature, you cannot have one original thought of your own. You cannot originate one action of your own. You don't get to decide how you think about anything, what you'll say to anything, or what you'll do on any day. All of those things are supposed to flow from the Holy Spirit within you. 
Go back to 2 Corinthians 12. See if we can begin to take this apart and see in light of what you've just heard what Paul is talking about then. In 2 Corinthians 12, pick up in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. It's interesting that the pulpit Bible commentary, the most expensive commentary sets that most pastors own, says that this was um, an affliction in his eyes, that there was a kind of uh, malaria that caused uh, the eye sockets to be attacked, and that because Paul mentions, see what big letters I write with, and another time he says, uh, I can testify that you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me if you were able. That this is obviously the thorn that is in his flesh. The highlighted portion here, messenger of Satan. The word messenger is angelos. 179 times I found it in the, in the word. 179 times that it was translated angel. Only seven times is it translated messenger. But it is never, not one time, translated eye disease. Not one time is it ever translated physical infirmity. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. The thorn in his flesh, clearly he describes as a messenger of Satan. This takes it out of the ballpark of dysentery or malaria or any other disease that the commentaries would say. You know what else we do not have a precedent for? In the law of prophets and writings, we do not have people calling a disease a thorn in their flesh. What is a thorn in their flesh? Things that were in their lives as the consequence of sin. And they were the product of sin, but were used for their benefit in the law, the prophets, and the writings. I'd like to take this concept of messenger of Satan a little further for you. Let's go to Job 2. Say there when you were there. Do I have your interest yet? In the first chapter of Job, Satan appears with the angels. And God asks if he has considered his servant Job because he's blameless and upright and there's none that are like him. And Satan basically says, yeah, but you've blessed him in everything that he does. His flocks and his herds are spread out everywhere. And after some consultation, Satan says to God, if, uh, if you harm the things that are around him, he'll curse you to your face. And uh, God says, very well. Now we're in the second chapter where we find Satan's ultimate desire. It's not to cause your car to break down. It's, um, it, it's, it's not even to uh, cause trouble in your life. His ultimate desire is revealed in Job chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? This is their second conversation on the subject. There is no one like him. No one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Listen to Satan's words. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your very face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the tops of his head. Many of you will remember that Job's wife even said, curse God and die. The feeling was that you could touch a guy's belongings and maybe he would still love you. But if his physical being was threatened, if his life was threatened, he would surely curse God and then die. That's clearly in the text, is it not? Satan, the word, means accuser or adversary. He has something of a prosecutorial role, a DA, if you will, in this story. And he is bringing accusation against Job. And God is saying, no, Job is innocent. And Satan is saying, yes, but his innocence is only, his love for you is only as good as he is healthy and safe and comfortable. If, in fact... You take things from him. If, in fact, he is mistreated in his flesh, he will curse you. Do you hear the contest of the book of Job then? Let's keep that in mind when we're describing messenger of Satan. If this is the goal of Satan, to put you in a situation to dishonor God, then perhaps a messenger of Satan is someone who is acting on Satan's behalf, carrying out Satan's desire. When Paul says a messenger of Satan was tormenting him. How about Zechariah 3? Let's go to the prophets. When you get to Zechariah 3, say I'm there. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Again, we have a man standing, Satan standing, and God present. And a conversation is occurring between God and Satan. And in this case, God is rebuking Satan and not allowing him to harm the high priest Joshua or Yeshua. The point being that you can see throughout the word Satan's desire to accuse and harm someone. And in this case, God intervenes. One more, just because we have it on the screen, go to John 13. In John 13, let's read verse 27. See how this one turned out. I promise this is going somewhere. John 13, 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Would that make Judas a messenger of Satan here? What did he do? He goes out and betrays Jesus to his death. It's preceded by a physical beating and then his actual death. It is his desire to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Does John 10.10 not infer that about the thief? 
<laughs> the technical part of that passage is the thief or the religious people. They have no interest in God. But it does betray the feeling of Satan in it. I'm simply saying here that a messenger of Satan should be taken to be exactly what it says that it is. Something was in Paul's life that desired to cause him to dishonor God by beating him, by hurting him, by afflicting him. With that in mind, let's look at Paul's former life. In 1 Timothy 1.13, these are going to be on the screen so that we can go through them quickly for you. Right? It also helps you grasp what is 10 or 20 passages in a relatively short time. 1 Timothy 1.13. We're speaking of Paul's way of life prior to a born-again experience. Even though I was once a blasphemer. When you think of Paul, do you think of a blasphemer? Yeah, I wouldn't either. And a prosecutor. I'm sorry, persecutor. And a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul describes his former life as violent, blaspheming, and persecuting. In Galatians 1.13, he says it this way, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. You beginning to build a picture here? A man who is violent, a man who is a blasphemer, a man who uh, is a persecutor, and intensely persecutes the church trying to destroy it. In Acts twenty two nineteen, when recounting his testimony, he says this, Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. Paul had been a man who went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who followed Jesus. Acts 22, verse 4. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Say to their death. <laughs> My beard is now on the mic. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. That's kind of ironic since Paul was often beaten in one synagogue after another. He was often thrown into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul had been a man that was hunting down the body of Christ, beating them, putting them in prison, punishing them. In Acts 9, verse 1, we hear another little clue. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Somebody say murderous. murderous. You know, John eight forty four says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. If Saul is breathing out murderous threats, could you not say that he is a messenger of Satan? Against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
God himself intervened in Saul's life. Do you remember the rest of the conversation? Why do you kick against the goads or the pricks, the thorns, the sharp stakes? See, there were things in his life trying to steer him to the grace of God. Some of those things were removed immediately when he finds the grace of God. Some were not removed at all because consequence is good for us. In Acts 26, 9 through 11, this gets very, very uh, profound to me. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. When we say oppose the name, this concept to the Hebrew people, a name is not just the word Jesus, for those of us in the South. It is his character, his body of work, his authority, his reputation. He wanted to oppose everything that had anything to do with Jesus. Do you know why? He was acting like a messenger of Satan. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints into prison. Who put them in prison? Paul did. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Look at the bolded portion that I put on the screen. Many a time, say many a time. Many a time time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to... In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Now let me ask you, isn't that exactly what was happening to Paul? In every city he went to, somebody was trying to beat him. People went from one city to foreign cities to accuse him. He was writing his letters from prison. Do you think it's a coincidence that these are all of the things that he had been doing? Let's look at the calling of Paul. In Acts 9.16, Jesus Christ speaks about Paul and says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul from the very beginning was called to endure. He was called to suffer. He was called to difficulty for the name of Christ. Good thing you're not, right? Did you know that Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone would come after me, not just one or two of you, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. It doesn't matter whether you're in a silver suit on TBN or not. The gospel has never changed. The calling of Paul was to suffer for the name of Jesus. Only in today's warped, crooked, and perverse generation could we say the calling of a Christian is to be blessed in the name of Jesus. In Acts 20, verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of grace. I'm going to begin to work at this gospel of grace just a little bit with you. When we say the gospel of grace, today, when people say grace, what they mean is God's excused my sin. See, uh, it's all under the grace, brother. My sin's just excused. I'm suggesting to you that when Paul says gospel of grace, it was about the dramatic 
contrast between the man who was once beating people and imprisoning them and attacking them for the name of Jesus, and now he is enduring every one of those things to advance the name of Jesus, and he calls that the gospel of grace. That grace was something that showed up in his life to overcome the sin that had once been overcoming him. Listen to how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What did grace do in Paul? It worked. See, grace was not just excusing what he had done. Grace was the power to face what he had done, overcome it, and do the exact opposite. In our time, we have something that you could call semantic drift. I've preached about it before. And when I did, I showed you an 1828 Merriam-Webster's Dictionary where truth was defined. Basically, truth was fact, right? And then I showed you today's Google definition where it's a set of agreed-to ideas. That's called semantic drift. We're using the same word, but it no longer means the same thing. See, when the Bible uses the word grace, it is using the word grace as a power of God that didn't just wash away your sin. It gave you power over that sin. See, grace in the Bible is not just something that says, oh, now you got a blank check. Now, now it's all just washed away. What grace actually does is it works within you to overcome everything that had ever been overcoming you. So when a man says that he's in grace, there better be power there or he's not in the grace he thinks he's in. Let's consider that Jude told us we would have this semantic drift. In Jude, verse 4, it says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. See, when you make grace something that says... I know I sin, but it's no big deal, really. When you write books called If Grace is Really Grace, and you make that a license for immorality, we're using the same word, but it does not mean the same thing anymore. Consider in Acts 4.33, with great power, somebody say power, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Do you know why? Because grace and power go together. Real charis is power. There's a relationship between the working of God's unmerited favor in you, which is how the Bible dictionaries define grace. I want to tell you that's virtually meaningless to this generation. What they hear is God's blessed me. That's not what it means. 
It means he has given you power that you didn't work for or earn over the sin that once overcame you. It does not mean that God just bless you even though you continue to sin. In Acts 4.33, grace and power go together. In Acts 6.8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. See, what had once overcome him, he now had power to overcome it, and that was called grace. See, this gospel of grace that is being preached all around us is no grace at all. It's actually some kind of strange band-aid that covers up gangrene. Real grace does something. It works within you. Ephesians 3, 7 I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His grace and power go together. They're synonymous terms. You become a servant. You couldn't make yourself that. It's grace. The grace is proven out in that you now have power you never had before. Grace does not excuse sin. Grace overcomes sin you tell me it's covered under grace then you better be overcoming that sin or i say you've not received the grace you think you stand in grace overcomes sin let me prove that beyond any shadow of a doubt in the word look at titus 2 in verse 11 for the grace of god not the grace of men not the grace of an osteen not the grace of some tv evangelist that is on their third wife not the grace of somebody who is picking your pocket. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say... what? Listen, it, in this case, is a pronoun. Pronouns have an antecedent. In other words, a pronoun replaces something. The antecedent is what it replaced. It is the pronoun. Its antecedent is... Grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. When you see somebody saying they stand in grace, but they're also standing in worldly passions, they lie. They do not practice the truth. This is why Matthew 7.21 says, Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's why 1 John teaches us, If you walk in the light as He is in the light, then these things will happen. By the way, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, 1 John says you're a liar. That's what the Bible says. The evidence of God's grace is power to walk differently. No to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. Grace gives you control over yourself. You find a man who's graceless, it's because he's rude. He can't control himself. He can't control his mouth. He can't control his body. He's graceless. You find a man who is full of grace, the Holy Spirit of God's power in him has given him control over himself. Upright in godly lives in this present age. Perhaps we should return to our text. See if we can bring this home. Let us go back to 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. A thorn in his flesh just as he had once been a thorn. A consequence of his previous life in Judaism. What is really not Judaism, a perversion of it. It would follow him everywhere. There was a messenger of Satan to torment him. He used to drag people to prison, now somebody wants to drag him to prison. He used to beat people, now somebody wants to beat him. He used to try to make people blaspheme. Now they're accusing him of blaspheming. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul was no different than you. He didn't like it. But he said to me, my grace, my power at work within you is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The very fact that Paul used to be subject to all of these things and now he was standing against them was evidence of God's power within him and a witness like the world has never seen. Therefore, this is Paul speaking, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That evidence of grace in him is that he was now facing everything that he used to do and he was overcoming it. Once had what had once overcome him, he now had the power to face nose to nose, eye to eye, fist to cheek. And it could not get him to disown or dishonor God. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults. Do you think Paul insulted people before? Hardships. Persecutions in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You cannot use this passage as an excuse to sin and say, Well, Christ's strong in me. That's not what this means. What this passage is indicating is that his strength is seen in you overcoming the sin that once overcame you. And that when people look at you and go, That guy used to be foul and now he can only speak praises. They will see that weakness of your previous foul speech now overcome in Christ's strength. Grace is, or at least is evidenced by the power to overcome what once overcame you. Let's take a minute to take this back to the law. We're nearing the end of an hour that went by way too quickly for me. Let's go to our next slide. Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 33. Numbers 33 is a passage that has been speaking to us lately, and you will notice in our messages that one revelation leads you to another. We build upon them, precept upon precept. If you ever get to a scripture that doesn't make sense, you don't throw out the scripture, you throw out your previous precepts. You've gotten something wrong. In Numbers 33, notice this order. We're going to start in Numbers 33, verse 50. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and cast idols. 
and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given you the land to possess. Skip down to verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. What you can see on the board before you is the clear relationship between those scriptures. You have to drive out every kind of sin that you're seeing the consequence of. If you don't drive it out, it will become a barb in your eyes. It's such an interesting thing. While you keep your finger here, turn with me to Ephesians 3. I want to show you one of the things that Paul is maybe most known for. He at one time didn't see Jesus. He had a barb in his eye. He, he couldn't, couldn't grasp the truth of the gospel. But in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. That's that power at work within him that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. He no longer has a barb in his eye. He's receiving revelation from the Almighty God. As I have already written about briefly, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by God's Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Paul was once a man that because he had not driven out his pride and his arrogance... In his own concepts about God, he had barbs in his eyes and he couldn't see. But the grace of God appeared to him. Power of God appeared for him. That he not only pulled the thorns out of his eyes, he received a mysterious revelation that had been kept from men in other generations. Grace is the power to overcome sin that once overcame you. Consider the second facet. You have to destroy all. And if you don't destroy all, they become thorns in your sides. The very thing that had been in Paul's life, a violent persecutor of the church who beat and imprisoned Christians. Now, what did he say he had in his side? A thorn in his side. And he begged the Lord to take it away because he knew that the Lord's grace, the power of God in him, could cause him to not have to deal with this. But God left it there to train him, to keep him, to keep him focused on all that was ahead of him. He couldn't very well hate the guy who was hitting him. He had been that guy. What a testament. When you consider demolish all or you'll have trouble in the land. <laughs> have you ever read Romans 8? Neither heights nor depths, uh, angels nor demons, nothing will keep it. We're more than conquerors in Christ. He had driven the trouble out of his land. When you consider take possession. Have you ever read Philippians? Philippians 3, I take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. He took full ownership of who he was in Christ. Grace did all of those things. Sometimes the power of God just gives you total victory over something. And sometimes it's a victory that is foot by foot. 
inch by inch. And in that weakness of having to depend upon the Lord, His power is made perfect. What kind of grace is found in your life? When you sing about amazing grace, is that the amazing grace that assuaged your guilt and now allows you to do whatever you want to do? Or is it the amazing grace that appeared so that sin that once mastered you, you now have mastery over? See, Paul did have a thorn in his side. It was a consequence of sin left in Israel's land. There was an endless supply of people who would do to him what he had once done to other people. But God's power caused him to face it and to overcome it. He could delight in his hardships because he knew that he stood in the real grace that is actually overcoming sin. I have never hated sin more than I do right now. I can tell you that the things that people have fallen to in our midst hold no appeal to me. But there are other areas where there's still a thorn in my side. It's been noted that three pastors, all of whom have a similar background, although Wade's smarter than both Matthew and I, and Matt's better looking than both Wade and I, we can go stand on a street corner in Chicago. Somebody wants to fight with me. Nobody wants to fight with them. We can stand on the same street corner, but in New Orleans, somebody wants to fight me. Nobody wants to fight with them. I'm bigger than both of them, fatter than both of them for sure. But everywhere I go, that's what... Do you think it's a mistake that that is the very thing that had defined my life prior? It could be, Christian, that the thing that you're struggling with daily was meant for you to depend upon the Lord so that His power would overcome it in you. And that you do not really stand in grace when you say it's covered under grace, but you're not overcoming the sin. Grace is when you are facing it and overcoming it. If we could stop our semantic drift and redefine our terms as they are biblically, we might have a more authentic experience. Islam says Jesus is a prophet, but they don't believe what the prophet says, so they must not believe he's a prophet like I do. Mormons will tell you that he's a savior. Of course, their strange perversion has a savior of this planet and many other planets and celestial sects in the heavenlies populating planets. So they must not mean savior like me. In fact, theirs is the brother of an archangel. The Jehovah's Witness will tell you that they're Christians. Of course, Jesus' blood doesn't purify you from all sin as a Jehovah's Witness. And Jesus is a God, but not the God. When we use wrong, the, the right term, but in the wrong way, it might just be a tool to deceive ourselves. We're going to come up and sing Amazing Grace. We're going to sing the 1800 version of Amazing Grace. There's a reason that we're going to. When you hear the verses, and it says something like, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You know, to fear the Lord is the beginning of an act of grace in your life. 
I just watched a man die who had no fear of God. It's grace that makes you cognizant of God. It was grace that fears my uh, fears relieved. Grace was grace and taught my heart to fear. Taught my heart to fear, and grace relieved those fears. It is an act of grace when you can stand and as a pure. Uh, hearted, pure conscience before the Lord because you know that that sin no longer has mastery over you. Perhaps the reason this has been a theological mystery for a couple thousand years is because people don't like the clear implications of what it means to stand in grace. I want to tell you, Christian, as soberly as I know how, in a day when people are praying for drunken anointings, howling like dogs and acting like idiots, searching the floor for gold dust, wringing out boxes of crackers and calling it manna. The greatest miracle we could possibly hope for right here is that you actually stand in the grace that you profess. That the power of God be at work inside of you in a way that no sin has mastered you. You are demonstrating mastery over it. If that's your desire, stand to your feet with me now.